Hash House and Circle Up. Welcome to On On, the Hash House Harrier podcast for interviews, history, and stories. I'm your host, Ra. In this episode of the On On podcast, we'll go a little bit beyond hashing and get to know the Colonel more, talk about his passion as an author and a writer and the overlap of that with hashing. Let's veer off the hashing a little bit because you are still writing and you've just finished another book. There's a hasher who's compiled a list of the world's occupations that he took from somewhere and is filling in all the little hashers who have the all virtually every job in the world. But you had a day job or worked as a consultant. How much time did it take? How much time do you put in writing? Yeah. All right. That, that, that's, that's a great question. Now, I did for a sort of 10 years work really full-time. And this, this included the time when I was writing Hair of the Dog and the Hardship Posting series, Gone Tropo. I think I wrote six or seven books in a 10-year period. Uh, as well as working for newspapers and magazines. Basically, I would clock on at nine o'clock in the morning and I'd work through pretty much until three o'clock in the afternoon. You you have to treat it as a job if you want to get it done. Now, I was lucky in those days where I was financially independent and I could do that. So my advice to anyone that, that wants to write is, well, how do you go about it? Is, yeah, you just need to firstly turn off the television because that's the biggest time suck that there is. And just say, look, every day commit to, most people have got a job of some description. It eats into life. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it eats into life. Exactly. All the stuff you'd rather be doing. What I advise people is look, just aim to write 200 lousy words a day. So when I say lousy, I mean only in the sense of lousy. And I also mean lousy, meaning it doesn't matter what you write. Just get the bloody thing down on the page. You can always come back and clean it up, rewrite it, draft, redraft later. But if you just make the discipline to sit down and say, okay, I'm just going to write 200 words. Before you know it, you've written 500 words. 500 becomes 1,000. 1,000 becomes 2,000. In a single sitting, yeah. that becomes, let's say, a thousand words, possibly a day, even if it's 500. It's not that long before you've actually got a full length manuscript for a novel or a, whatever it is you want to write. Yeah. To give you an example, my latest book, which is hot off the press this week, is called A Bleeding Slaughterhouse, which is about a series of hospital massacres at a British military hospital in Singapore, World War Two. You know, it's a World War Two story about humanity and inhumanity and war crimes and It's a ghastly episode, and I don't fully understand my morbid fascination with it. But once again, it goes back into that kind of 1930s, 1940s colonial Southeast Asia genre. Now, that one, for example, you know, this this is 150,000 words. The actual writing of it probably worked, I guess, the last 18 months pretty solidly on the writing of it. Mm-hmm. But the research of it, God, the research of it spread across 10, 12, 14 years because I was ransacking the Imperial War Museum in London and the Australian War Memorial in Canberra and the uh, Singapore Archives and the Singapore Library, et cetera, et cetera. And I was into, I mean, finding relatives of these survivors and interviewing them. I actually interviewed two survivors. Can you imagine? Wow. Two guys still alive who had actually survived this hospital massacre in which 300 soldier patients were killed and bayoneted in their beds. 
I found two guys that were still alive that survived that. So I interviewed them. And I also found living relatives who found memoirs written by their fathers uh, who had actually survived. Yeah, so I'm unfamiliar with this. I know you you had to kind of distance yourself from the <laughs> some of the earlier books. Is there anybody that didn't want this book published? Um, yeah, possibly the Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> this was an unsolved crime for 80 years because ah. nobody ever went to war crimes over this. They tried to pin them to the mat and couldn't and didn't. Right. And there was, I mean, there was all sorts of conspiracy theories and cover-ups and things in the subsequent years about this. But I finally managed to, I think, pin the tail on the donkey of the actual perpetrators uh, of the two massacres, one on the 14th of February, one on the 15th of February, February 1942. And yeah, I named names. And um, yeah, I, I, you know, I believe I've cracked the code. So yeah, wow. I imagine that there would be a be some people that wouldn't want to be implicated in it. But look, it's painful for a lot of people. One of the things that was really interesting about this one to me is I knew more about some of the survivors Mm -hmm. than their families did. So, for example, there were five known survivors of the Sunday massacre out of sort of 200-odd people that were rounded up. I spoke with two of the families of those five and they had no idea that their father was even involved in hospital massacre. All they knew was, yeah, look, dad was a POW in uh, Singapore. That's all they wow. knew. Wow. Clearly, the experience and the pain of the experience and the PTSD and whatever was just too much for them to ever open up about or to talk about or whatever. So I actually ended up telling their families, hey, this is actually what your father went through. And I drew them diagrams and those maps are now in the book. Here's where he was and this is where he escaped from and this is where he got shot and this is where they bayoneted him. But he finally made it back to the, you know, this point here or da-da-da. And I said, look, at any point, if this gets too heavy for you, please tell me to stop. And I could often see that they wanted me to stop, but but they wanted me to go on, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, it was a challenge to face, but knowing is better than leaving it to their imagination since you had the info, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, I gave them full chapter and verse, and finally, they were very, very thankful that I had expose so much new information to them and for them um, because it helped give them closure I guess as unbearable as that process may have been so you know that to me is just part of the satisfaction I guess because you're helping people to actually understand many of the people that I've uh, interviewed worked with got to know very well as a result of this book and the previous war book the missing years as well they are thankful the fact that I've, I've led them to the water and given them the closure and the information the details so they can now lay those ghosts to rest. Just play with the full picture, I guess, as as uncomfortable as it may be, Um, but they are actually playing with the full picture. So, uh, yeah, Yeah. that's part of my satisfaction beyond just the writing itself. Yeah, that sounds like a good use of six hours a day of a life for 18 months. Congratulations. That's good. You've just gotten draft that you're getting close to final publication with, but is, is this something that becomes a movie someday? Is that something you'd like to see or is it? Yeah, well, I've actually finished the book. It's it's now out. Um, oh, it is out. Okay. Yeah, it's literally, I think, went live on uh, Amazon as a paperback and ebook end of last week. 
and we'll go into bookstores in the next couple of weeks in sort of Southeast Asia. It's funny you say that, Ra, because as I was writing it, I was going, why is Netflix not making this a series? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I really should go and pitch it because, look, it's so cinematic. It's so graphic. It, it's out of a bloody story. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it should be. So anyone that may have some contacts in the in the movie world and uh, bring this to life yeah let's have a talk for sure probably not the case but we'll i'll put you in touch with as far as we know the first hasher to make a hashing movie mm. he made a horror film it's called buzz cut it's in new zealand it premiered in auckland about a year ago and it's a slasher movie in the woods set with a hash weekend as the background so they're the characters that get their heads cut off and he is a filmmaker. That might be a good connection to just uh, have a chat about. For he'll know the New Zealand oh, market. Yeah, well, well done to him. That's that's good news for him. But uh, it's a great story which uh, needs to be told and get to a wider uh, audience by virtue of film. Yeah, that that'd be a terrific idea. Yeah. Oh well, let's drag it back to talking about hashing. After leaving a Southeast Asia and hashing in Australia, how was that transition as a hasher? Look, Australia has a very, very, very vibrant uh, hash scene. And, you know, there's such obviously a geographical diversity in this part of the world and people that run in deserts from people that run on beaches and mountains and et cetera, et cetera. When I'm in Sydney, I will still occasionally get along to the uh, to the posh hash, which is uh, my home kennel in, in Sydney. Bunch of great people. In fact, I'm having lunch with a guy on Friday, Paul Pilkington, who's just turned 80. Wow. And I said, 80? I said, how did you become 80? Yeah. <laughs> and the, the amazing thing is he is nowhere near the oldest member of the Sydney Posh Ash. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we just lost Darwin Don, uh, the venerable Darwin Don last right. year, still running on trail at 99. Yeah, he passed away just last year. Look, there's a bunch of people sort of somewhere between 80 and 90 in the Sydney posh hash. They've had a bit of luck recruiting some younger people, but, you know, I don't think there's anyone sort of younger than mid-30s or maybe 40 in the Sydney posh hash. It's just mm-hmm. the nature of, of that kennel. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. I talked with Scott a couple months ago. All right. Yeah. And I know TikTok pretty well from, the, he's such a traveler. He goes to America Interhash, they travel to the World Interhash, they're always on stage and I'm emceeing, so Posh Hash is reliable to put an act on. That's right, I was part of their chorus line there for many years, and yeah, TikTok was, was very much the, the conductor and orchestrator of all of that. Yeah, to, uh, say, uh, absolute showman, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> abominable showman, Yeah. <laughs> Any other names come to mind? Who are some of the posh hashers? You've mentioned a couple of great ones, but some of these guys that are decades long. The Donnelly, Dave Donnelly, for mm. example. Khaleesi. So Khaleesi used to be in Bangkok. That's where I think he started hashing. Uh-huh. And, and he's down here now. Music Man, of course, he's a part of our show troupe as well. He, right. He's a great song and dance man as well. They're some of the more sort of colorful characters. And then there's a whole bunch of people that just don't travel. I know by virtually whether it's family commitments or they're just happy to sort of trot out and do the posh thing on a, on a Monday night. You know, they never make it sort of uh, further afield than, than Sydney posh hash, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I remember uh, encountering this before 
Rotorua Interhash doing some of the pre-lubes. And I met I met one guy called Queenie. And this guy had long blonde hair, really fun guy, great runner. And we were I was a front runner and we were running through these things and tearing at it with each other. And uh who else was there was Clone was there out of Thailand too. We're running together. And I said, Oh, I'll see you at the next one. He said, Oh, I'm never leaving this island. You'll never see me again. I'm like, oh no. And then he was like he hashed, but he's like, oh, I'll never, I'll never get on an airplane. Never mind. Really <laughs> yeah. So there are great hashers that are in it for decades, but yeah, not known beyond their club then. Yeah. Yeah. Look, you know, I think Sydney Posh, uh, you know, you, you were talking about Singapore men's before, and the Sydney Posh kind of you know, it is a similar beast in a way. Very, very traditional. We don't have ice and we don't have, uh, we have some singing, but not much. But mm-hmm. it's very, you know, every on-on is a sit-down meal. Sometimes, I mean, literally with white tablecloths and silver cutlery, mm-hmm. uh, candelabra optional. <laughs> but yeah. it's a sit-down meal. There will be fine, you know, a fine wine list. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's the nature of the posh. A very, very, very different animal, Um, but I I found it extremely enjoyable. It's very unique in its flavor, and I think that's a great thing about hash is uh, some people hate the posh hash. They hate everything that it's done, (laughs) everybody that's in it, Um, but that's fine. If it's not for you, it's not for you, and it is funny because some of the people that are running in the posh have been running it since its inception in the early 70s and actually don't take kindly to visitors they see it as their own private club why would mm-hmm. we want visitors and even <laughs> you know i mean even new members it was kind of joke but it's only half a joke that you know I, I was running with them a good sort of eight nine ten years before i fully felt like i was part of the club with a few of the members yeah yeah, that's great. A long internship. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So, you know, that that's just part of, of part of what it is and part of what it stands for. And I think it's just interesting that, you know, hash culture is not one size fits all and it's not just one thing. It's what you make it and the the characters that are in a kennel dictate what the kennel is and you know who we are and what we stand for and what we'll put up with. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's great because it means that it, it evolves and metamorphosizes around the world to suit, you know, local conditions and what people actually want out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've you've had a close look at it. You've talked to so many people and looked at it from all the different incarnations that you've tracked down. What is it about hashing for you? If someone just said, why do you like hashing? Why'd you do it? I guess it's a combination of many things. To me, it's a sanctuary, which is, okay, within the confines of the hash, pretty much anything goes, right? As long as you're not violating some rules are there to be violated. But no, as long as you're not violating some other person's, you know, space or life or whatever. Yeah, their experience, yeah. Everything goes, yeah. The political correctness, uh, you know, the, the gloves are off. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can just be yourself for better or for worse. You get to see the world and parts of the world that you wouldn't ordinarily see. And, you know, as you know, gosh, I mean, if you go and hash in, say, Finland, which I did one time, the local hashes took us and, you know, set a trail around a lake, which as a tourist, I would have never seen that lake yeah. yeah, or parts of South Africa. As a tourist, I would have never seen that forest that we ran in one beautiful afternoon had it not been on a hash run, yeah? Absolutely. So, 
it gives you this sort of access all areas type of thing with the local, local, local knowledge. Yeah, that's all part of it. But then I think on, on the bigger side of things, it's just the fact that you've got a, uh, I was going to say brotherhood. That's a very sexist word. A, uh, a tri- people, some people call it a tribe. A tribe, there we go, um, to which you belong. And once again, as long as you're a respectful member of that tribe, you know, you can find yourself whatever, friends or a bed or a sofa for the night in any country, city, village across the world uh, you find yourself in. So, you know, there's instant camaraderie, instant acceptance, um, as long as you're a reasonable human being and most hashes are. You know, so I think that's what it is. Yes, you're spot on. That's the word. It is a tribe of like-minded people with a certain take on the universe for all the diversity, for all the different experiences and, you know, race, colors, creeds, et cetera, et cetera. When you're in the hash, you're in the hash, you're a hasher, full stop, and uh, the acceptance which comes with that. So I think it gives a lot of people acceptance and a sense of belonging mm-hmm. uh, in the world, which you might have been lost, you know, as the pillars of whatever religion and all these things fall away relatively around the world as important pillars of society, what do people ultimately then belong to? Maybe you belong to a, a football club or mm-hmm. whatever, but I think what the hash stands for gives people a sense of belonging mm-hmm. within that tribe and and the satisfactions that, that come from it, the, the friendships, the bullshit, the banter, the just, just <laughs> great times. Yeah, absolutely. The way you've said all that, I relate to, and I think almost every hasher will say, yeah, but let me just say, because you're well-traveled, anything, anything else you've encountered that has that characteristic? You know, I think if you if you look through sort of how and where hash started and how hash culture formed, you could say that there is a continuum or homage of sorts to rugby culture. Right. So a lot of the early hashes were rugby players. A lot of the songs were rugby songs. Right. A lot of the disrespectful uh, banter, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is very much rugby culture. Yeah. So it might be drawing a long bow and saying, yeah, you could possibly find something similar within the world of, of rugby union. Because the competition breaks down. It's a competitive thing, but at the end of the day, You'll find too, especially at the lower, uh, you know, non-professional levels, the ruggers go out and play and beat on each other and then party together. And it is that same. Not the, there's not a separation of competition that stays with it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Nor the requirement for physical fitness, frankly. You know? <laughs> one of, one of the, uh, the great anecdotes, I think, came from one of the very first interhashes. And this, this is probably a, uh, tip of the hat credit to uh, Tim Magic Hughes, where it might have been in KL, it might have even been the very first into hash. All these people descended on this particular hash hotel in uh, KL and were milling around the uh, lobby and whatever. And the hotel manager came out and said, Who the hell are all these bloody noisy people in our hotel? He said, Oh, they're a, they're a running club, sir. And he looked around and he said, well, they don't look like athletes to me. <laughs> I get, you could say that the whole way through, yeah. And that is held up for 40-some years, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think that's the great thing. And it's, it comes back to the uh, the thing of the uh, the drinking club with the uh, running problem. And 
Yeah. You know, I think that that balance is about right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've, you've enjoyed collecting these stories into all of our lasting benefit. You've written them mm. down, but, mm. and some of them are crazy in that book. There's some great anecdotes, but for you, have you ever gotten in trouble? What do you have a story about running in with the authorities or getting injured in the hospital? What's happened to you on the hash? You know what? I'm one of life's great observers. <laughs> I let the madness unfold around me and I duly jot it down. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. No, I, uh, no, I don't think I've ever, ever run afoul of the law on a hash run. We certainly had uh, authorities coming along and making polite inquiries. Yeah. yeah a, a number of times, but you know, nothing compared to what I hear coming out of, say, China, for example, or Cambodia or places where, you know, there, there, there's some really serious kind of shit that goes down with, with the law and, and whatsoever, or even in the US, yeah, lots of run-in and white powder scares and all this. Exactly, stuff. exactly. Yeah. No, you know, sad to say, look, mo <laughs> no, I mean, I, I go along, I enjoy the, the run and the bullshit and the banter. In the early years, I probably had drank way too much Tiger beer and then got in my car and drove or rode a motorcycle home, which was uh, absolutely crazy. But that's what everybody did back in the day. We used to race home in Cairo from the desert. I would race home against two yeah. Irish women who were quite good drivers. And we Cairo traffic, like many places, is insane enough. And we would just be drunk and racing through the streets. And yeah, lucky yeah. to be lucky to be here. I probably shouldn't put that in the podcast. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, that's the thing. I put all of this stuff down as, uh, you know, glad I did it at the time. Yeah. Glad, I lived, glad I lived through it and glad I lived to tell the tale. That's it. But no, a lot of that stuff, and I'm, you know, I'm talking very just personally here. No, a lot of that stuff has all gone out of my repertoire. And yeah. no, you know, it's funny because all, for all my public uh, author persona, of the wild and crazy years. Yeah, look, I've been there. I've done that. Um, but that's not me anymore. I live a very tame domestic life these days. And that's true fact. <laughs> yeah, we can put this in. And we can talk as much or as little as you want about it. But let's get up, catch up on your personal life and how what in the pandemic, how the pandemic affected you there? I say the biggest change, I guess, with the onset of COVID is I, I arrived in Australia on the 14th of March, 2020. I'd packed my ba bags for a five-day trip, said to my wife, hey, uh, in Chiang Mai, that was when I, when I left the airport, hey, I'll see you in, uh, in the weekend. And it was uh, 21 months before I saw her again. Yikes. So, <laughs> yeah. So that was really challenging. The other thing too, you know, I was involved in a lot of face-to-face uh, -face corporate training. So from Chiang Mai, I was flying all over Asia all the time. I mean, nonstop running training workshops for Fortune 500s. That ground to a halt overnight, obviously the face-to-face. -face. Being replaced somewhat by you know, virtual Zoom sessions and things like that. But the great thing about the lockdown is that last year, I think 2020, I said, all right, I've got all this time on my hands. What am I going to do with it? And I pushed over the finish line four books, I think, which I had been working on, which were wow. uh, maybe like 70% finished, 80% finished. Yeah. I said, this is nonsense. Let's just finish it now. So I think last year I published five books. So wow. four of them were just finishing off works in progress. 
And the fifth book was something very different, which was, you know, everyone in the business world was saying, ah, we need to pivot. And, you know, pivot became the buzzword. Right. So I actually set myself a task. I said, I'm going to write a book about pivoting and it's called Pivot Power. And I had the idea on the Saturday morning. I said, I'm going to write this thing because I, I had the knowledge in my head because it was kind of, I used to run a workshop on you know design thinking and stuff so i knew a fair bit about pivoting i had some case studies in mind anyway so i sat down on monday morning and i said right i'm going to have this thing finished uploaded published on amazon within one week and within a week so i literally wrote the twenty thousand words from monday to friday finished editing etc etc designed the cover and at about eleven fifty nine on the following monday night i uploaded <laughs> that to Amazon. You know, I was kind of, I guess, living and breathing the message that I wanted the book to put across, which is, you know, you've got to think fast, act fast, just get shit done, right. um, you know, especially in a crisis. So the, you know, the subtitle of that was kind of 20, 25 ways to pivot through this crisis and the next. Um, so, you know, nice. it was like a, a living, breathing message, which was, you know, this is how fast you got to think, this is how fast you got to act, you've got to experiment, don't wait for stuff to be perfect etc etc so you know the book itself actually lived and breathed those kind of messages but you know it's interesting isn't it because if you contrast that that one i i wrote and published within a week Uh uh, you know the bleeding slaughterhouse uh, my new book is probably 12 years in the making in the making wow let's catch up the detail that we left hanging and that is your wife in chiang mai yep well, finally, uh, what happened is at the end of last year, borders, it looked like with all vaccinations and things, borders were about to reopen. And we'd sort of come to an agreement with her as, hey, we've already gone this long. Why don't we just wait till March or April? By then, there'll be no quarantine. There'll be you know, no questions, no rigmaroles, no thousand questions to answer. Right. Just come in and, and we start our life together in Australia. So we'd agreed that was the plan. So I thought, that's great. I can wait another three months. And then suddenly Australia opened its borders and Thailand opened its borders. And I said, hey, guess what? What if I come up to Chiang Mai and we just spend a nice five or six weeks together? I come and hang out there. And then we, you know, either you come back with me or you can come back in April, whenever it is. And we carry on with that plan. And then literally we booked our hotels, booked our airfares. The trip was on. I was like, yeah, on the beach in Thailand for a few weeks. Nice. And then I went along and got a cancer diagnosis, like literally four days before I was due, due to fly out. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I look, So I, I have a bit of a history with, with cancer, which goes back uh, six years now. I had what do you call accidental discovery of a stomach tumor. And this thing was about the size of a Rubik's Cube. I had no idea wow. it was there. No Ill, Ill effects. I had no symptoms, nothing. Took that bastard out. Yeah. Had, three years, had three years of treatment. After three years, I was all clear. They gave me a scan just to confirm that everything was all clear. Everything was clear. And they said, well, just scroll up to the lungs. And he said, oh, what's this? Bang. Oh, no. Yeah, discovered a, another tumor, which un, completely unrelated. It was a melanoma tumor. I'm like, what the F, you know? Wow. Um, anyway, had that cut out, then went, uh, had two years of sort of immunotherapy for that. Been in the clear since then. But been having regular scans every quarter just to make sure that everything's behaving itself. And, you know, that was picked up accidentally. And then this one was picked up just by accidental monitoring. So I literally just came out of, of a week's 
hospital of having a, what I can only describe as a, a mixed grill removed from my wow, yeah. cavity of, um, you know, I, I lost sort of two and a half vital organs in the process. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm uh, literally only half the man I used to be. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel now sitting around writing? How do you feel compared to yeah. what you remember? Look, I mean, I feel fine. Obviously, still a bit tender around the uh, oh yeah, That's around right. the gut. But um, I go tomorrow to the oncologist to find out what's next in you know in terms of the treatment course to deal with this thing. So you know, all of this is just a reminder, Ra, that you know we've only got today. You know, yeah. we're only promised today, and I think hash is a great way of remembering not to take life so seriously, yeah. and to really seize the day. And just enjoy those moments around the ice and the beer wagon, because you never know, you know, when's your last icing? <laughs> yeah, just, yeah I, I think it's just a reminder, you've got to live for the moment. And I've not always been good at living in the moment. But I think one thing I have learned from this is, yeah, you know, you've got today and you've got to be in the moment more and live for the moment more. And uh, yeah, go, go for it. So uh, yeah. That's, that's kind of what I'm learning from, from all of this. Well, we didn't make a big deal of the book really, but it's a big deal. I mean, hair of the dog is, I hope, you know, this will help let people know there is a book out there. You should. And if you're a hasher and you've done this for 10 years and you plan on doing it, get the book and read it. This is yeah, just part yeah, of you. It's part of your tribe. His story. And understanding where the tribe originated, why it originated and you know how it spread around the world and yeah just grasping the basic sort of principles of the hash religion very important yeah, yeah. well well, put, well, put. well i don't think i knew in 2002 that the book was just published i kind of thought oh maybe it's been around a while i can't i can't remember because i got a copy in 2002 okay and i i had known magic known him well for a couple of days he came over to work at Cypress Interhash right before I was right before he died too, mm. a couple months. Mm -hmm. So I spent the day with him post holding, putting wrapping around the Cypress venue. So right. I got to talk to him a lot and good stuff. Learn well, so we've good. covered a lot of ground and I really appreciate the opportunity. Good luck to you and your podcast. It's a, it's a, it's a really uh, worthwhile pursuit and I'm, I'm glad that you're doing it and I really hope it gets the traction and yeah, let me know how I can help you to promote your work and uh, get that work out there as well. We all benefit from it. Thanks so much yeah. indeed. That's great. Well, I've certainly enjoyed these moments with you and it, it's been great to talk to you, Colonel. I've got kind yeah. of a traditional question that I ask people at the end from a hash perspective. Colonel, is the RA always right? <laughs> yes, at that moment. Until, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> until the circle is dismissed. <laughs> as much as we disdain authority in the hash, the RA has ultimate authority at that moment. I want to thank the Colonel for coming on the podcast today. The Colonel, author of many books, including Hair of the Dog, a book that needs to be on every Hasher's bookshelf. This is the On On Podcast. Hasher stories, Hasher voices, Hasher history. New episodes every week. Until next time, On On, this is Ra. To close the circle, here's the Hash Anthem sung by Mother Hash. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to catch.
mi 